I'd like to invite you to follow along as I read Mark 2, verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. And as we consider today that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, I want you to see how he not only states it, but he demonstrates it by what he is doing in this passage. So you follow along as we begin reading in Mark 2. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they, that is Jesus with his disciples, made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave to them, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. As we look through this passage, the the one thing I do not want you to miss is that Jesus is the point of the Sabbath. Now, I'm going to go back to some Old Testament scriptures and, and bring them forward. And my point, and I don't think Mark's point here, is to establish that everybody needs to observe and celebrate the Sabbath according to Jewish tradition or even Jewish law as it had been laid out. But there's something else taking place here that it fits into this narrative of Mark's gospel where he continues to just dismantle those religious forms, as we were looking at last week, that actually keep us from knowing the living God. So here is Jesus, God in flesh, beginning his earthly ministry. He's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom, calling people to repent and believe. He's been performing all kinds of miracles. And on this particular Sabbath day, he is moving from one location to another with his disciples. And there's a problem that erupts. And we read it in the scriptures uh, as they were going through the grain fields. They were plucking grain and the Pharisees object. And in the larger context of our study, and I know some of you are new with us today and just jumping in on this, but this is not the first time that questions have arisen from the religious establishment. They've been asking questions, everything from who has the power to forgive sins except God, and that was Jesus' point in saying, I forgive your sins, to the question that we considered just in the last two weeks, why would Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? That's certainly a violation of the community code. You don't want to hang out with sinners. Well, now here's another question that arises. Why do your disciples pluck this grain? They're doing what is unlawful. And their system that we'll explore a little more in depth here in a moment had become so rigid, so tight, that this is considered unlawful. Now, let me explain a little bit about this. Because their religious form 
had become such a dominating force in their lives and in the community that it actually obscures them from seeing God who is in their midst. That's why I would say religious forms sometimes make us blind to Jesus. In all likelihood, Jesus and the disciples did not have time to prepare food for the Sabbath. And we know from Mark's account that that they've been very busy, Jesus in particular, preaching, teaching, healing, spending time with people. And what they were doing as they moved through a field was, in all likelihood, taking heads of grain in their hands, rubbing them together, letting the chaff fall away, and then they'd be left with a handful of grain. So it's a very modest meal, if you can even call it that. It's more of a snack on the go. And the Pharisees say, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? That is, it's not permitted. And if you go back to the book of Exodus, among other places where the Sabbath is first described by God to the Jewish people, it is clear that God said, I want you to cease from work. It's a day of rest. But over the years, as the religious leaders, the rabbis in particular, had begun to dig in and study and try to amplify the meaning of the Old Testament Scriptures, and they developed the Mishnah, that's their tradition of interpretation and commentary on how it should be lived out. The Mishnah, as is noted in many places, actually lists 39 classes of work that would profane the Sabbath. Some of these we might expect, things like plowing or hunting or butchering, but there are others that we would not. Do you know that they had actually stated at this particular point, you could not tie or loosen a knot? So you who tied your shoes this morning violated the the Jewish Sabbath according to the rabbis, not according to the Bible. Let's establish that difference. And if you untie your shoes in a little while when you go home, well, you did it again. A list of 39 things, as we said, some of those that would not surprise us, but let me just blitz through this list. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning, weaving, uh, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying and untying, as I mentioned a moment ago, sewing stitches, tearing something, trapping, slaughtering, writing two or more letters, erasing two or more letters, building, demolishing, extinguishing a fire, kindling a fire, putting the finishing touch on an object, transporting an object between a private domain and the public domain, or for a distance of four cubits within the public domain. A couple of others that I could throw out as well. But can you imagine waking up every Sabbath morning and thinking, there's a whole long list of things that I better not do today or else I will have committed sin. That's the level to which it had been raised. And according to the rabbinic tradition, what the disciples had done to take the grains uh, the, those heads of grain in their hands and, and, and get the edible stuff out of it was considered harvesting. Now, all of us know that's not a harvest. And if some of you who grew up on farms would, would like to stand here and testify, you'd say, oh, harvesting involves a lot more than grabbing a few heads of grain, rubbing them between your hands, and popping the grain in your mouth. Harvesting is hard work, isn't it? Days on end, tiring, sweaty, exhausting labor. One author writes, such scrupulousness inevitably resulted in novel rulings. Weird, just bizarre stuff. 
Do you know, for example, it was also forbidden on the Sabbath to set a dislocated foot or hand. It would wait until the next day. You know, it wasn't life-threatening. So just hang on there. We don't want to violate the Sabbath. Try not to moan too loudly to interrupt our worship. I don't know how that was, you know, actually being worked out, but this is the kind of thing that that had developed by Jesus' day. So you can see his great concern, and I think it's not just chance that he's in that field and they're harvesting uh, a little grain, according to rabbinic tradition. I think, in a sense, Jesus is picking a fight. Do you know why? Because gospel truth is at stake. And these are people who continue to believe that by their obedience to to these 39 39 rules for Sabbath keeping, that they're going to make their way to God. And Jesus is intent on overthrowing that kind of thinking so that they can actually be rescued and find their way to God by grace. I know the text doesn't say he was picking a fight, but he, he certainly is not shying away from one. So they ask this question because they're actually blind to the reality that he's God and he's right there. He's the whole point of the Sabbath. They should be in the field with the disciples, just listening to what he's saying, hanging on every word, but they're not doing that, are they? No, so Jesus actually begins to open their eyes to the actual focus of the word, and I think this is a little bit of a zinger. Look at verse 25. He said to them, have you never read what David did? Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to Pharisees, the experts in the Old Testament. That'd be like walking into the Supreme Court and saying to the justices who were there, "Um, have you ever read the Constitution? (laughs) Read it. We're expert in it. So there's a little bit of a zinger there. But I think he's also making a point. You've read it, but you haven't understood it. And so he goes on to say, What David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence. Now, what's the bread of the presence? If you're not familiar with the Jewish tabernacle and temple uh, procedures and and rituals that God had inaugurated, one of the things that he did was to, to make a very special bread, the bread of the presence, the presence of God. And it was a very significant part of worshiping God, and it had all kind of symbolism and significance with it, but only the priests could eat it because they were the representatives before God for the people, and when they partook of this bread, it was part of the visible demonstration of the people that that sin had been atoned for, that God's wrath had been appeased, his justice had been satisfied, they were in right relationship with God, so now we can have this meal. Well, on this particular occasion, if you go back to 1 Samuel 21 and you read through the story, David has been anointed king, but he's actually still on the run because King Saul is in power. And King Saul is not a good man. And so David, as king, comes into this place, and he's hungry, and his men are hungry, and he asks uh, the, the priest, what do you have? And the priest says, I've got this bread of the presence, And David says, I'll take it. David is actually exercising his kingly authority. There's something else that's also taking place and that he's a human being created in the image of God who's hungry. There's necessity. So there are a couple of things actually taking place in this story that I think Jesus is is drawing a parallel uh, or making a parallel point with that he has the authority 
like David had the authority, and there's also necessity. In the same way that David's men were hungry, his disciples are hungry. And it's, it's not a violation of the Sabbath law that God would punish them for. Now, I do want to note in this text, some of you may have study Bibles in front of you where you would see some interesting things going on because Mark says, in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, but if you go back to 1 Samuel uh, and, and you begin to read this particular account, it, the priest who's on call is actually Ahimelech, and he's the father of Abiathar. So lest we panic and think that Jesus, first of all, got the story wrong or that Mark somehow messed it all up, I think you have another example of this coming later in Mark's gospel where it's a general reference to a time period. And, and even in our own nation's history, we've had multiple presidents who have served, but if you referred to the, the 1980s, for instance, as the era of Ronald Reagan, well, that would be true in a general sense, wouldn't it? But he wasn't the only president who held office in the 80s, Right? And I think Jesus is just making a general reference to that time period. Now, let me give you the other example of this. In Mark 12, verse 26, Jesus says, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Now, remember, they didn't, they didn't, have, they didn't have books printed like this at that point. There were no Bibles uh, in that day. There was a Bible, but I mean, I mean in the sense of uh, a printed edition that you could open, and certainly they did not have chapters and verses. They had scrolls, and can you imagine how some of you grew up in, in churches or settings where you had sword drills? Any of you remember that? Your little kids. It's a good thing. Help us familiarize with the Bible. That'd be really challenging with a scroll, wouldn't it? Especially if it was Isaiah. That's a long scroll. And so Jesus is making reference to a section, and there's no chapter and verse that he can point to, but he says it's in the section where God speaks to Moses and the burning bush, and I think you have something similar here in Mark 2. So I would say, please don't let that trouble you. I, I don't think it is something that needs to be uh, really create conflict in your soul, and there are critics and God deniers who want to act like Jesus doesn't know his Bible either, and that's... That's just ridiculous, all right? So it's a general reference, and I, I want to just equip you with that, lest some of you see it and be troubled or wonder about that, or even encounter somebody at some point who tries to give that as an example of, of one of the flaws in the Word of God. But let's press on. And what Jesus goes on to make very clear is that the Sabbath was actually designed for us to see Jesus, to open our eyes to Him. Let me just summarize very briefly the, the main purposes of the Sabbath as they are first revealed to us from the Old Testament. Five purposes of the Sabbath, very quickly. First, commemorating God's work of creation. It's explicitly stated in Exodus 20, and if you've read the creation account recently, you know that on the seventh day, God rested. So he set the example, and then he calls his people through the book of Exodus to, to celebrate the Sabbath in part to commemorate God's creative work. Secondly, and this was a big deal for the nation of Israel because they'd been enslaved for over 400 years. That was a special day where they didn't have to work and God frees them from that and says, let's celebrate your freedom, your redemption. 
Most of us are used to a five-day work week. Some of you work six days a week, but you know, when you work seven days a week for week after week, month after month, that really starts to drag your soul down, and there's a reason for that. Because the God who created this world, I think, really has designed a schedule that says six days you work, seventh, a seventh day you rest. But when you've been enslaved, and you're not only working seven days a week for tyrannical kings or pharaohs, in Israel's case, and they're not paying you well, they're not looking out for your health care, they're not trying to provide any side benefits, and you've watched hundreds and if not thousands of your people die an early death or sometimes even just die uh, atrociously because of this great enslaver, when you are free, that's something to celebrate. And the Sabbath was a, a weekly celebration for Israel. And then God describes in Exodus 23, it's a day of rest and recuperation and refreshment because he knows that even those who've been rescued from slavery but still have to go about their daily work are weary from that. And while we don't practice a Saturday Sabbath, because that would be, that's the seventh day of the week because of Christ's resurrection and some other things you see happening in the New Testament, we celebrate the first day of the week I do hope that the Lord's Day is a day of rest and recuperation even for you. These are really good purposes that God designed. Here's a fourth purpose. It's a sign of God's work to set apart His people. The day is holy because the people are holy. And that just means the day is different from the other six. And so God's Commands and instructions that you should cease from labor are not intended to place some kind of enormous burden on people, but actually to free them. And, and maybe some of you do this in your own households. My wife loves to cook. And, and sometimes I just think to my, and I, I don't think quite the way she does. Um, I, I love to eat the food that she prepares, but if you, if you really wanted me to you know, cook you a fine meal, um, it would take a lot with them. You know, she, she enjoys the whole cooking thing. But if it were left up to me, you know, several days a week, we'd just have sandwiches because that's easy. And we'd eat on paper plates, you know, because the cleanup afterwards. Um, you know, and to make some of the meals that she does, the kitchen is just, I mean, it's absolutely destroyed because she uses so many of the tools. And I'm a little more utilitarian. I'm like, what a mess. we got to clean that up. But she's saying, what a meal. What great food. And God's design even for the Sabbath was not to, was not to make it a, a day of, of sobriety and seriousness and like can't talk or do anything that's enjoyable. It was actually to relieve them because life for the, the Israelites was difficult day in and day out. And so he's relieving them of pressure. Well, the fifth purpose of the Sabbath, it was a day for God's people to assemble. And he calls it a holy assembly, a holy convocation. Because they did come together to worship him. And they, like we, uh, would read the scriptures or hear them read. They would spend time in prayer. There were sacrifices and other rituals that God had called them to uh, practice and participate in, but it was all for their blessing. And here's a really helpful scripture. Let me read the whole thing, but I've highlighted just a couple of key phrases from Isaiah 58, 13 to 14. God says, keep the Sabbath day holy 
Do not pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath and everything you do on that day, and don't follow your own desires or talk idly. Then the Lord will be your delight. I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestor Jacob. I, the Lord, have spoken. I think Isaiah 58 summarizes the, the whole point of the Sabbath. It's a day to draw near to the Lord and delight in Him. But again, by the time we come to Mark 2, by the time Jesus enters the world and comes to the Jewish people, so many of them had lost sight of who is at the center of the Sabbath. And to them, it's all about the list of things you better not do, and it's about keeping the list of the things that you have to do. And when you're focusing on all those do's and all those don'ts, and you miss the God who is central, you've lost the point of the Sabbath. And that's exactly where the Pharisees are, and they can't see the glory of this moment that Jesus has people around him, and they are celebrating the Sabbath exactly as they should. And so he says in verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I think he's not only saying, I have authority over it, and, and saying, I designed it, I created it for you, but I'm the point. This is my day. I love the fact that as master and owner of the Sabbath, he is determined to do exactly what he knows is best for his disciples. And there are two extremes that he is actually guarding against. There's the extreme of legalism and there's the extreme of antinomianism. You know what that word means? It just means anti-law. And the human nature is to go in either one of these directions. And you want to be really spiritually schizophrenic? Just examine your own tendency to actually do both of these. You, there's legalist in all of us and there's anti Nomian in all of us. There's some stuff that you are hardcore about. It's like, this is right, and we will do it. And there's other stuff you're like, no way. Nobody's going to tell me what to do there. What Jesus is doing with all of his ministry, but this particular point is actually confronting these two extremes and guarding his own people from them. Now, look with me, uh, if you will. This, this is a little description. The legalist has actually replaced the person of God with what one author describes as autonomous revelation. That's like self-revelation. That's what the rabbis had done. They had taken the actual words of God and over time so uh, studied it out and translated and interpreted it and then applied it that by the time you get there, that's, that's how you reach the point of saying can't tie a knot or untie a knot. That's work. That's sin. That's autonomous revelation. God never said it, you know, but Rabbi Danny did, and we all know he was a great rabbi, so we're going to follow what Rabbi Danny said. Well, God help us. And Jesus refuses to let this kind of thinking continue because it's deadly. And so they make the, the law the whole point. 
And God didn't give you the law to make the law the point, did he? The law gets you to him. Now, on the other side, you have antinomianism. And the, this is all of us, but this is operating as a free agent. I make my laws. I make my rules. I do what I want to do. And so I certainly look at the Ten Commandments and say, eh. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Yet, even the antinomian has some kind of law that he lives by, right? I mean, you see this in the culture every day. One group wants to establish their law, whatever it is, over others. And so even the, even the vice president's wife has been taking a lot of flack this week, hasn't she? Because she is teaching art in a Christian school. And others have labeled you know, all Christian schools as intolerant, as bigoted, whatever. Well, that's their law, isn't it? So they may say we reject God's law, but they actually still have their own law. And Jesus doesn't want either group to continue in that thinking because it destroys you eternally. The problem with the Pharisees is that they read the Bible as their own revelation. They, they make it mean what they want it to mean. They make it say what they think it says. And consequently, they miss Jesus. So they read the Bible. And again, that's part of the reason Jesus said, have you never read? He's making the point that you've read it, but you haven't read it in faith. You haven't read it seeing Jesus. All you see are principles and regulations and rules and policies, and you've created this system that's so oppressive that you can't actually find the rest that I created on this day. I wonder if you do that with God's holy word. What is the first thing you look for when you open the Bible? The first thing ought to be God himself. What is he saying? What is he doing? What is he revealing about himself? And sometimes you have to, let's face it, you you have to stare a little longer at the words and think a little harder. Other times it's just plain. But what is the first thing you look for? Some of you would actually have to say, I I don't read the Bible. And so you, you would be in that right column. You may not have actively said, hate God, deny God, don't believe that there is a God or that he has a law, but functionally you live that way because you never take time to look at his word and listen to him and find out what he wants you to know about him. You know, Jesus stands at the center of this day and this moment because he is what matters. He's God. And in the same way that he's showing everyone how intent he is on having a relationship with ordinary human beings, even as he's in relationship with the disciples, he also intends and desires to be in that kind of relationship with you. He really does. Now there's a little more. Let's go quickly. And I promise you, I, I will not spend as much time preaching this paragraph as I just did. All, all of that has bearing on this. We, we actually will move rather quickly through this. But let me review again, Mark 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. You follow along as I read this again. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. 
And he said to them, that is to those Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to them, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, there's several things that Jesus is doing here, but the first, as he shows us the heart of the Sabbath, what it's all about, he actually exposes our hard hearts. Now, I know we don't want to read ourselves into this because nobody wants to say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the Pharisees, but I want you to just think honestly and humbly before God at this particular moment, how are you like them? Their intent on bringing legal charges against the disciples and Jesus, that's the whole point of their previous question. They not only want to discredit him, but they are looking for ways to silence him. And so he goes on the offensive here and says to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, is it lawful, uses their own terminology, because they had said about the disciples, it's not lawful, it's not permissible for them to harvest the grain in the field on the Sabbath. But he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And amazingly, they are silent. Why? You know, in Luke's gospel, the issue of Sabbath healings and the attitude of the Pharisees is revealed to us. It's best captured in the words of the ruler of a synagogue who on another Sabbath day had great problems with Jesus healing a woman who had a disabling spirit. Can you imagine this? She's had a a disabling spirit oppressing her for 18 years, the scripture says, stooped over in a way where she could not straighten herself. Who knows all the consequences from that kind of horrific disability? But after 18 years, she is in the presence of Jesus and he heals her on the Sabbath. And you would think it would be a glorious moment where everyone would say of their friend or their neighbor or even that woman they'd seen walking down the street, she's been straightened and strengthened and now she can live life the way she really wants to and needs to. You would think that would be the response, wouldn't you? But the ruler of the synagogue, Luke 13, 14, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Is that not stunning? But that shows you the kind of bondage and oppression of a system that is so legalistic, so demanding, and so uh, scrupulous in all of its insistence on observing the little nuances and even down to what the rabbis have taught and not that the Bible or God ever intended. That system becomes so oppressive that people can't function reasonably and rationally and sanely within it. And Jesus, through the gospel, actually restores some sanity. So he is revealing this hardness of heart. And I think these men are silent at this particular moment because they're hardened, uh, they're, they're hard-hearted in their legalism, just like this ruler in the synagogue. Very religious, but very dead. Did you notice the response of Jesus? 
He actually grieves over our hard hearts. The Bible uses the term anger, and he himself is indignant. He looked around at them with anger, Mark says. It's the same kind of indignation you feel as a human being who reads uh, one of these stories and says, how could they be against his healing? It'd be like standing in an emergency room and seeing sick people come through the door and, and you've got medical staff on the other side who's like, no, we don't want to do it today. Come back tomorrow. I mean, wouldn't you be indignant over that? Sure you would. There is a righteous anger. Not all anger is sinful, and Jesus is modeling an example of it. But then Mark uses the word grieved. He is actually sorrowful. Sorrowful that these people who've been created in his image by his powerful word, people who've been given life and opportunity, who even have access to his word, have so missed the point of the word that they are hardened in the state, have no compassion for this man who needs to be healed. And the God of the universe grieves. That's amazing, isn't it? Well, I'm glad he doesn't stop there because he actually demonstrates that he has a compassionate heart, perfectly compassionate, and he also has divine power. And so he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, you know what's beautiful to me? That little word restored is one of the key ideas from Sabbath going all the way back to the Old Testament. That God intends to give you rest, to let you be restored, to, be, to let you be refreshed and renewed. That's what the day is all about. And if ever there was a perfect day for a man with a withered hand or a woman who is stooped and bent over because she suffers the oppression of some demonic spirit, if ever there was a day for people like that to be delivered and healed, the Sabbath is a, the day. And you know, I'm struck by this, that here is Jesus God in flesh, moving through all kinds of communities, meeting all kinds of people with needs. And so far, we, in all of this storyline of Mark, every person who's come to him and sought healing or restoration or deliverance or really wanted to know the truth, he has had time for them, he's had compassion for them, and he's had power to do the thing that needs to be done. And all that these rabbis can do is kind of, you know, hold their religious literature over the heads of people and say, try harder, do better, measure up to the community expectations and standards, and it's killing them. And Jesus comes with his kingdom message and comes with his kingdom authority and says, I'll not only teach and preach to you, I will touch you and heal you and I will restore you. And you know, there's not a different message today, and there's not a different Jesus today. The only difference is he's not presently on planet Earth. But you know the really powerful thing to me? In his departure, he sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not bound by time and space. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, can actually be in every part of the world at the same time, and he's here today seeking to restore you who are so worn out that you say, I don't have a withered hand, but I got a withered soul. His touch will make you whole. So lay down this burden you've been carrying, trying to keep the 39 rules. You can't. Lay down this pretense that you're a really good person. 
religious, committed, faithful in all the stuff that whatever somebody said you ought to do, I mean, that's you. Stop. Come to Jesus. He is Lord of rest. As we close, I want you to think this morning of four important questions because we not only want to hear the word, we want to go live it, right? So the first question, because we want to read the Bible in the right way, right? So the first question we ask is, what does this passage show us about Jesus? What does it show you? And we could begin to fill in the blanks with a number of things. First of all, we could see uh, his lordship. That's a big point he made, right? The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. We also see he's full of power that heals. He's compassionate. Others, religious leaders would have said to the man with a withered hand, come back tomorrow, we'll talk about your healing, not Jesus. He's like, come here right now. So there are a number of things that it shows us about Jesus. He wants you to know it and believe it because some of you struggle to believe that Jesus would really think and feel and, and love you in these particular ways, right? Number two, what does this passage reveal to you about your heart? This is the hard and scary thing sometimes, but you know what? Where are you like the Pharisees? Where are you like the disciples? They don't seem to be major characters. There are no words of theirs recorded, but they are near Jesus on that particular day. Maybe you are like the man with a withered hand, and there's something that is severely deformed within you or about you. You say, oh God, could you heal me of this dread sin or even just this feeling of worthlessness that I can't shake? Whatever it is, do you see yourself there? Number three, what changes do you need to make? It may be changes in thinking. You need to stop thinking of this, this book as a list of do's and don'ts and nothing more. Oh, there, there are do's and don'ts in here. God's serious about the commands and instructions. But you can't separate those things, things from a relationship with him. And the commands are ultimately about how to love him and love others. That's what it all boils down to. So what changes do you need to make? And then finally, what can you tell or who can you tell about what you are learning and what Jesus is doing in your heart? It's another part of being a follower. You talk about Jesus. You talk about Jesus. So be thinking, who, who can I tell? Let's bow our heads and pray in response to the word. Father, as we consider your word, how thankful we are. First of all, thank you. Thank you for recording some of the very words of Jesus for us. Thank you for working by inspiration through Mark to record significant portions of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So thank you for this record. Thank you that you are God who is authoritative, God who is powerful and compassionate. Thank you that you show us the way to eternal life. Help us to submit to your word. Help us to submit our hearts to you. Grow us in your likeness.
I pray for those who are struggling right now. Some just to believe, oh God, give them help. Illuminate their hearts with the truth that is in Jesus. Some who are struggling just at the point of submission. They're not sure they can really trust you, and so they feel great pressure to be in control. Trying to map out life. Trying to guard and protect against the scary contingencies, but Lord, would you show them they are not Lord. You didn't create them to be Lord. You're not calling them to be Lord. Only Jesus is Lord. Give them the grace to just humbly trust and follow. We repent. We believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.